0: Good morning. We have some people in the church that are getting ready for baptism, and uh, I just thought that it would be good to take a Sunday and just go through baptism and what uh, what baptism uh, means to this local body here. Um, views on baptism can be pretty diverse depending on, you know, what church you grew up in and what church you're attending, and so I just tried to take a tried to take a look at biblically at the time how did the early church view baptism? And so I titled it Baptism and Believing Loyalty because we're going to really talk about belief today and faith and what it means uh, what it means when you take that baptism. Um, so today what we're going to try to look at is baptism. How do we view it? Uh, What is it? What's the New Testament outlook on it? Should you be baptized? Believing loyalty. What's believing loyalty? And uh, we're going to look at the the consistency between the Old Testament and New Testament as far as believing and and the the belief that brought you God. Um, We here, we talked about this as a leadership team a little bit, and our our idea on baptism is is that it is a public profession of belief, faith, in Yahweh, Jesus, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Um, it is a physical declaration that you are aligning your life with the death and resurrection of our Lord, Jesus Christ. When you are baptized, you serve only one God, and you are part of only one kingdom. And we're going to go into that today. Uh, just looking at baptism right away, the first thing we get in the New Testament with baptism is we get Jesus being Baptized. Um, He said that he did it because it was fitting. He did not need to receive baptism, but did it because he embraced his humanity. As one of us, he was baptized. He notes an importance of baptism through this act. And we'll read a little bit here, Matthew 3. Um, And in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all the Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, and we'll talk about what repentance means here. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork in his hand, he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan, um, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for this it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Um... We think about this, and a lot of times when we, we visualize it and we see it in paintings, we think the clouds parted, and then this light comes down. The word open there actually means to to rend or to tear, which I don't know what that would even look like. But the sky was rend, it was, rend, it, was it was torn. It's the same word that they use um, when Jesus dies and the curtain is torn and rend. It says it was rended. That's the same word. So it's this, there's something, there's breaking, there's this coming of something out from what is being torn and rended. Um, and that's what we see here. And uh, it's, what's interesting is that, is that when we first see baptism with John, he's talking about repentance, which we will talk about. But then when Jesus, um, when Jesus gets baptized, God uses it as a time to declare his son. In the same way we kind of look at baptism as a declaration of who we're going to serve uh, Yahweh used this moment to say, this is, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This was his declaration time too. And uh, just kind of setting up this idea of baptism and declaration. Um, want to talk a little bit about repentance because that's another thing that sometimes we, we take and we turn it into something that's not quite. Um, repentance actually just means it comes from the word metanoia, and it's, that's a transliteration of a Greek word. I put it up there. But it means afterthought or beyond thought, with meta meaning after or beyond, as in the modern word, like we would say metaphysics, beyond physics, or you know, outside of physics, it's kind of above. Um, and now is meaning mind, as in the modern world word, like we would say paranoia. It is commonly understood as the transformative change of heart. In classical Greek, Metanoia meant changing one 's mind about someone or something. Sometimes we hear repent and we just think that we 're just taking a sin to God and we 're saying, you know as, as a kid, we always talk about stealing the bubblegum from the the drugstore, and now we need to repent about that. And we look at it as kind of like a duty like we 're going and we 're repenting we 're sorry, Lord, my heart is sorry." But what it's actually saying with repentance, it's a meaning. It's a complete change. It's a complete mind shift. Old, gone, new mindset. There. It's not just something that we we flippantly um, we use repent, and we sometimes we think, oh, that was bad. You know, God, I'm sorry. That I understand what people are meaning by that, but what? they're talking about this greek word actually means it is a complete shift this is something totally new you're leaving the old behind you're embracing this a new way of thinking Um, and later on we'll see that they used repent especially with meaning that change Um, so just when we talk repent we're not just saying i'm sorry for stealing the bubble gum we're saying i'm thinking wrong I need to shift and think like. And in this case, John the Baptist is saying, shift your thinking because God is here, the kingdom is here. Shift your thinking. The old, go to the new. And so that's what he's baptizing people in. It was this preparation for the kingdom of God. And so when we think about repent, let's think about repent in a little uh, stronger context than a lot of times what we do. Uh, moving on with baptism, baptism. Um, We go through the life of Jesus, Um, he dies, he is risen, and here he is talking to the 11 disciples. Um, And now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So when you see you're making disciples, baptizing, teaching, again, we're focusing on some of the mind here. Um, discipleship, we've, we'll, we'll talk about discipleship more in the future, especially with what we see where, where our church is going um, but it's it's that it's that teaching and that's that making, that reproducing, baptizing them in the name, helping them get to that point where their mind is changing to see things through the lens. In this case, again, he mentions the Trinity, um, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So so we see that baptism is that shifting again. It's that it's it's they're coming out of something, they're baptized, they're now into this, the teaching is coming. Um in america we get we can kind of get um, with baptism we kind of look at it like everybody's dressed up we 're going to church because my niece is getting baptized, something like that we 're all coming around and we maybe we 'll see and that you know we don 't even have to get on infant baptism, but we're all there we 're there for it it 's a very cool thing it 's this event, um, but as we see in the scripture it''s it 's it's, it's more than that it 's more than just this uh this procedural procedural thing. Um, And it's just, we need to be serious about baptism. And when we decide to be baptized, we need to know what we're agreeing to. Um, And just some passages about baptism through Acts, just showing that it continued. So, you know, Jesus was baptized. Um, We know we want to model things after Jesus. We see that Jesus is then commanding them before he... He goes up to heaven, he's commanding them to go out and disciple and baptize and teach. And now, here we are in the early church. In the case of Peter, um, like this first, this first paragraph is immediately following Pentecost, so this is like automatic. And then, um, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, there's that repent, that change Make your decision, you're going from the old to the new, and be baptized, every one of you in the name. And then um, another passage, now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This is one thing that I think also we do with, with some of the Western church, is we, we, look, as, we look at baptism um, like the water is washing away our sins, and I think probably they get a lot of it from this verse, but that's not actually, that's, that's not what's happening here. Your sins are already washed away before you're baptized. So don't think, because we, you know, go down to the river and pray, and the sins are washed away. Like, we got all those songs. That's some bad theology. Um, your sins are washed away before that. So those are fun songs. I like some of those bluegrass tunes. Bad theology. Bad um, theology. So I think that's kind of where they get that. So let's, so let's just, we can mention that real quick. Otherwise, if you got to get baptized to wash away your sins, we'd be doing baptism like on a weekly service, you know, where there'd be like this cleansing period, which in the Old Testament, there was some of that, where you go to wash and it was a signifier of you washing away your sins. So there were people that were, baptism was a, was a practice. Um, but that's not, that's not what's going on here. Um, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So in this case, here's an instance of him commanding, get these people baptized. They already received the Holy Spirit before they were even baptized. Because sometimes we also like to put in order, you know, you get saved, you get baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. And this is an example of, well, oh, it didn't exactly go in that order. But that's doing it. Um, and Paul said, another another place in Acts And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So here again, we're looking at baptism of repentance, and repentance is being referred to as that belief, that belief change in the one that was to come after him. Um, And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Um, again, Paul's got some thoughts on baptism, and to kind of collect this, we're, gonna, we're not going to go through all of 1 Corinthians 12. But 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about the spiritual gifts that come from Christ and the Holy Spirit. Um, the section is kind of prefaced. It says now concerning in the, in, the, in the scriptures, meaning he's addressing something that was brought to his attention. And in this case, what we can gather from what was being brought to his attention is we are in Corinth, they're still they 're coming out of idol worship they 're coming out of the Greek gods you know they were worshiping Greek gods for different things and uh, so they were by nature idol worshippers before you know before the conversion um, and Paul is addressing in this the fact that some of them think that you have to go to different gods for different spiritual gifts, so you might go and pray to Athena for some kind of gift of knowledge or wisdom. You may go and pray to Artemis for the gift of, of healing or something like that. That's kind of how they had it set up. So they were wondering with Paul, you know, who do we pray for? Who do we pray to for these different spiritual gifts? That's what we can kind of get. And so, so Paul is, is telling them there's only one There's one spirit for all of these gifts. And that's where we pick up with 1 Corinthians 12.12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So just highlighting the baptism again there, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. We made that statement. We declared that. We're now part of one body. All of us are one body, under one spirit, one God. Baptism is a sign that we've made that choice. We've gone over. We are part of the one body with the one God. Um, again, in Colossians, he addresses it a little bit deeper. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he's talking figuratively here about circumcision. Having been buried with him in baptism. And then here's where he brings baptism in, in comparison with circumcision, which is kind of what we're going to get with this. In which you were also raised with him through the faith and the power working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you... Who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of the death that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So let's just keep that circumcision, baptism kind of connection there. Um, Going to Romans 4. And to the one who does not work, but believes in it, believes in who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. So just stopping right here, he's just making a point about works. He's making a point... You know, Abraham believed God. It was faith. It wasn't Abraham's works. And then we'll go into it further here where he mentions circumcision again. In this blessing then, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So there he's talking about the sign of circumcision. It's being noted as like a, it's, it's, it's a physical sign. Um, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham Add, before he was circumcised. All right. Circumcised is compared to baptism. It is not the same. I don't think that they are equivalent. I think that Paul is making a comparison. In the same regards, because he's making this comparison, we also know that circumcision was never meant to save. Circumcision was a sign. It was a declaration. Oftentimes, if you were to convert into the Hebrew people, you went through circumcision. That was a sign. That was a physical sign. I want to make the point that I believe baptism is not meant to save. Um, some churches would disagree with that. I think there's scripture to back up that, that baptism is not necessary for salvation. But baptism is very important and recommended. Not, not, not saying that. I think that when you make baptism required for salvation, you've now entered in a work into salvation. Does that make sense? And this is what Paul is talking about with Abraham. Abraham believed before he was circumcised. His faith was counted righteousness before circumcision, before he did anything. Um, It's not a procedure to obtain something. You've already received everything before you're baptized. It is acknowledging to the world and the powers of darkness that you have left and picked aside. This is, I think, the crux. I have faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross and death and I am making this a physical declaration for all humans to see for the forces of darkness to see I have picked a side. A physical sign to accompany what's already happened inside. What has happened inside by this point? A couple quotes I enjoyed um, pertaining a little bit to this as far as directly baptism, but more to this whole idea of faith and this loyalty to one. Salvation means believing loyalty to Christ, who was and is the visible Yahweh. There is no salvation in any other name, and faith must remain intact. Personal failure is not the same as trading Jesus for another God, and God knows that. The reason I like this quote is because what's that saying right there? Personal failure is talking about additional sin because there's a lot of people that wig out if they're hitting a rough patch in life and the sin is there, the addiction is there. That's not the same as trading up for a different God. Okay? So when we declare loyalty, this is how we need to view salvation. It's not work-based, right? Baptism is not going to save us. Baptism is a declaration. We've already made that declaration in the heart. The declaration is what matters. Who do you serve? If You're having an issue with heroin? You're having an issue with heroin. Hopefully you still believe that Jesus, Yahweh, Holy Spirit, are the one true God. And I think that if you do, you've got to get that heroin worked out. That's for sure. But you're still loyal. Your life is still centered on the fact that he is the true God. Does this make sense? Okay. And so baptism is where you make that physical declaration. Um, And then the other part of it, the spiritual war brought on by the inauguration of the kingdom of God offers no neutrality. Just as Moses demanded who is on the Lord's side in the wake of the golden calf. So the question is put to every person today. There is salvation in no other name, the name of Jesus, who was and is the name, the presence of Yahweh who tabernacled on earth in flesh for the salvation of the nations. I think that that puts it very plainly, and I think that the, the example of Moses coming down and saying, who is on the Lord's side? You have this golden calf, we're already getting into worship of other gods, and Moses is saying, whose side are you on? And I think that that's what baptism is. I think that baptism is that public declaration of whose side you're on, It's a lifelong choice. We talked earlier about Abraham's faith, pre-circumcision. It was a changing of his heart to follow only Yahweh and trust only in him. He chose Yahweh as Yahweh had chosen him. He put aside entertaining any of the other ancient Near Eastern gods. He's coming out of Mesopotamia, Abraham is. He's coming out of the the, the precursors of the Babylonian gods and that whole worship of other gods, and he's saying Yahweh is the one. And that's what's attested to him as faith. He, he made that jump. He went from the city of his father, he followed God, he did the works following Yahweh, the only God. And that's what Paul is saying counted. It wasn't the circumcision. God looks at the heart, he gives us salvation on belief alone. This is consistent, and this is where I want to go with the rest of this, this is consistent in both Old Testament and New Testament. Sometimes I think people sometimes I think that people they, they criticize the Bible by saying it's not coherent all the way through. And I would say that this idea of belief in one is coherent all the way through and the, testifying that it's the faith that makes these people and so what we're going to do for a little bit of this and we'll get back to baptism is we're going to sh- look at some of these uh, heroes of the faith that are talked about in Hebrews and then even Jesus mentions a few heroes of the faith when he's preaching in Nazareth and these heroes some of these heroes that he's mentioning the the fun thing is they're not they're not Hebrews. They're not people who had everything laid out to them with a the temple and with Law And with this, he's pointing out the condition of their undying loyalty to God. And only one. And so that's where I want to show, so I can just strengthen the case that baptism is that loyalty. Um, The New Testament recognizes pagans, in quotes, who came to the realization that Yahweh was the supreme God. They are recognized as full of faith among them. Um, Jesus, when he's preaching in Nazareth when they reject him at first in Nazareth the prophet is not, you know, received in his own town. He mentions the widow of Zarephath and he mentions the Naaman. And then the author of Hebrews is going through all of the forefathers and he throws in Rahab, which is interesting because the rest are all Jews all the way through and here he throws in Rahab, which is, you know, important especially for who we get out of Rahab's lineage. Uh, none of these pagans had any of the Israelite teachings to guide them. They simply had faith in the one true God. They believed and were changed. And so I'm going to look at their stories. Um, we're going to get back to, to Sunday school here. We'll go through some Sunday school stories. And we'll just emphasize this believing loyalty, this, I, this idea that you've picked a side and this is what you're going with. Um. So Second Kings 5, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, so right now we know he's Syrian, he's not an Israelite, was a great man and a master in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went went in and told his lord, the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel is freaking out. He thinks that he's sending him there. He can't do this, and that this is going to become a precondition for a war. Great. Now we're going to have Syria because I cannot do this. And so the king is, king is upset. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, "Why have you torn your clothes?" Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, his whole entourage, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would have surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the whole place, and cure the leper." So Naaman has a precondition. He thinks, I am Naaman. You are going to come out to me. You will do a mighty ceremony in front of me and my men, and I will be cleaned of my leprosy. Kind of shows you where Naaman is at right now in the way that he is thinking. Um, but Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought they would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, or Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Again, his arrogance. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? And so he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. According to the word of of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all of the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, that I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house, the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. He said to him, Go in peace. So there's a lot going on there. So what's going on there? is there is an automatic change of heart. There is automatic change in his mind. He has been healed. The healing was enough that he's willing to say, there's only one God, and he is here in Israel. This is the true God. And when he says that, we know that he means it because he's ready to dump off the money and honor of the prophet to give to the prophet. But also, we know that he means it because he's instantly worried about what's going to happen when he leaves Yahweh's turf. And so that's, again, I've talked about this before, but that's why he takes the cartloads of dirt. He asks for the soil. He says, I'm going to take the this, this soil back, and then I'm going to do my own offerings to Yahweh on his soil. And what's interesting about that is, with currently what was going on in Israel, who's supposed to be doing the burnt offerings? The priests. The priests are supposed to do it. If the priests don't do it, it doesn't really count. Um... But Elisha gives him the soil. And then he's like, oh, and by the way, I'm going to have to continue to go into this house of idols. But I just want you to know that even though I'm going in there, I don't mean it. And Elisha says, go in peace. That's all right. You're going to do your own offerings to Yahweh? That's all right. Go in peace. You still have to go into this house? I'm not saying that we as Christians should go into the house of other gods and worship other gods, or go with our friends to worship other gods. That's not what I'm saying at all. Paul makes that very clear, and we'll talk about that in a little bit when we talk about communion just a touch. But what I am saying is that all of this stuff that Israel had going for them, the law, the priest, the temple, everything, that's not what brought them that fullness in God. It was the heart. It was the thing that Naaman had. And so, and this is like okay. Well, that's you know that's that's a good interpretation of this. It's not my interpretation of this. This is what Jesus says in Nazareth when he's preaching, when he's talking to people about faith, when he's talking to the people in his hometown. Oh, you of unbelief! Why can't you be more like these two people? And then he lifts up lists off two Gentiles. This is one of them. So there's something about that faith. There's that heart condition. And the next one we're going to look at. Um, we're going to look at. Um, Rahab and Joshua too. And so Joshua has taken over. Joshua is trying to get into the promised land. They've already done some stuff. Um, but now he's looking at Jericho. And so we get to Rahab. And, uh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So other interpretations acknowledge that she was also the the innkeeper. So quite frankly, probably what we gather is this lady was running a whorehouse. And the spies went there because they figured we can hide there. It's a good place to get intel because we know that in the old days, your military, a lot of your military officers, your military was visiting the whorehouse. So what we would gather, the spies were going there. They were looking for intel. They want to spy on the military. They're going to the whorehouse. Um, and they came, and they went and they came into the house of the prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. They're not very sneaky spies, evidently, because the people already saw them. And then the king of Jericho said to Rahab, Bring out the man who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true. The men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. She did. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fjords. And the gates were shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. So pausing right there, she's saying, I already know what your God can do. We know the people in the city know. We heard about the Red Sea. What happened there? We heard about how you went and you fought the Amorites. Sihon and Og were the two, were two giant clans. Sihon was the king of one. Og was the most famous of the giant kings. And she's like, you guys went and you slaughtered all of them. You destroyed their... That's the devotion to destruction we've talked about earlier too. I know what you did to the giants. I know what God did with the Red Sea. We're... We don't know what to do. You know, she knows. And, uh, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She knows. That's her right there. That's her declaration. Again, he's the most high. There's no other God like Yahweh. And she's made her decision. Made her decision enough that she's lying to her king. That's no longer her loyalty. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours and when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, where the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. And the men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours, that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household, and if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall not be and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. They told him all that had happened, and they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants. Um, Hebrews 11 lays out that she is a hero of faith. To the point where she knew she knew what Yahweh had done. She knew that he was the most high God. And she had made her decision. To the point that the, the Israelites were willing to make a deal with her. When you swore these deals, you swore on a God. They didn't each pick a different God. They were swearing on the same God. That's, that, that's what was going on. That was the context. And so, again, she didn't have the priest. She didn't have the temple. She didn't have a lot of knowledge. She only had heard of what he had done. And that was, that was enough. And she made her choice. And because of that, she is saved. They come in, short, they come in, they take Jericho. Her and her family are allowed to join with the, the Israelites. And they joined, and evidently they married too, because it's said that in the lineage of Jesus, she marries Salmon, who is the father of Boaz. And then we get Boaz and Ruth, and eventually we get David, and eventually we get Jesus out of the lineage of this keeper of a whorehouse, who had the faith to do what she needed to do because she had made a decision on whose side she was on. Um, The widow of Zarephath is the other one that Jesus mentions. And just for for sake of time, we're not going to go into it much. But again, she was not an Israelite. And that's who Elijah was sent to. And Elijah worked miracles in her house because of her faith through Yahweh and her faith in Yahweh, even though that wasn't even who she originally was serving. So we'll just skip that for a second. They didn't have the churchiness. They didn't have the priest, the temple, the law, the other teachings. They simply had faith in Yahweh. It was credited to them. And in the New Testament, it is once again solely faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't what we knew. It wasn't what we did. It wasn't works-based. He died for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait until we were baptized to die for us. He didn't wait until we were helping out our local church to die for us. And what he demanded was loyalty. We did nothing to deserve it. True faith will spur us into action. True faith will see the change come. Again, that change, that shifting in your mind, that repentance. No longer default mode, which is the world. We're born into default mode. We have decided default mode is no more. This is where we're going. Jesus Christ paved the way. Um, but followed through to the end. There were setbacks, there were sins, but their loyalty did not waver. Um, If you go through the heroes of the faith, and when they talk about faith, they are talking about belief. They're talking about those who made the decisions. They go through all of them. They mention David. David is a man after God's own heart. Never once left the side of Yahweh. Did some bad stuff, but never once left it, and he was a man after God's own heart. This is not a declaration saying you get to sin. Paul takes care of that when he's talking about this stuff. Okay? He says if you use this for a place to sin, as a reason to sin, he, he says you're being dumb. Like that paraphrase, that's what he's saying. That's not the point of this. Um, I believe that baptism is that public declaration of your loyalty. You are now God's son. You were God's son before, but you are now God's son. Physically, you are saying that, you are showing that, or daughter. Jesus is your king. This kind of gets taken over into communion real quick, too. We'll talk about this. Um, Paul uses some very specific wording that he carries through. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So right now he's talking about idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of other gods. It's the worship of the other systems. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols are anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And he's talking about participating in the feasting. He's saying the food afterwards, if you're taking from the food, but if you're participating in it, even though you say you're a Christian, you can't do that. You've made your decision. It's one cup. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So he's using some specific language here with demons and provoking jealousy. And I want to do a throwback to Deuteronomy 32. Um, but Israel grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. And you forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him in jealousy to strange go- with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently before whom your fathers had never dreaded. So again, the the message is the same. The message is 6,000 years old. You know, this is what we're dealing. God, God has made it clear. Communion commemorates not only Jesus' death, but your covenant relationship with Yahweh. There's no room for idolatry at the table. And I think it's very important that as we look at baptism, as we look at communion, when we do these things, these are public acts. These are public. Mm-hmm. This is this is what we have decided. There is only one God for me, and so that's where I'm at with baptism. And uh, it can be fancy, it can be fun, the way that people do it. But when it's coming down, like this is this is your this is your oath. You know, you've taken care of it on the inside. Now you're, it's, it's like marriage. It's like, this is, it's covenant. You know, I love you, Jesus, so much that I'm going to do this physically. This is my, this is my thing. I could say that I loved Kara a bunch and she could say that she loved me a bunch. And we could just have this loving relationship. But if we're not committed, if we don't get married and come to you guys and say, look, Kara and I, we really, really love each other. And as a product of this, we're going to take this covenant before God because this is true love. Baptism is is similar. That's what it is. You're saying, I am in love with Jesus Christ the only way this. Does that make sense? I think baptism is serious. I don't think it's like a dress up and have fun. It is a decision that can only be made by a person when they realize and have made that value change, that repentance, that changing from one side to the other. Um, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. There it is. And the second Is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. He is saying right there, the Old Testament, what we're trying to get through to you you are going to love God, Yahweh, with all your heart, all your mind. Everything hinges on your belief in the one God. And then when you believe it, you live it. There may be problems. We can deal with problems. David dealt with problems, but the heart has to be there. That posture has to be there, and that's what baptism is. It's saying, this is the posture of my heart. This is what I mean. Baptism is a serious decision. It's a declaration of allegiance. There are only two sides in eternity, and you are making a physical choice that mirrors the spiritual choice you've already committed to. You are choosing the Trinity. You are publicly declaring that you are living for Him alone, and that's where I want to leave it. That's baptism. Just thought we'd get through it with a bunch of people that are about to be baptized. So know what you're doing. Know what you're saying. Know what you're um, you're getting into here. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have made a way for us to make that decision. Jesus, we are excited that people want to cross over. They want to be on that team. They want to make that declaration that they are on your side. They are part of your kingdom alone. They're not part of the world. They're not part of the nations. They're not part of people serving other gods and God's different systems. They are yours. And Lord, we're excited about that. And I just ask if there is anybody here today who feels like They need to re-examine and make sure that that's the way that they're living, Lord. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would bring that to them, that you would help them through that process, and that just that realigning. We thank you, Lord, that you are the most high God. Jesus, you are amazing. That you came down and did the things that you did so we can continue in that original relationship, what we were created for. And so we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for being part of that. We thank you that you bring us back in as sons and daughters. We love you. As we go forth this week, let us live as people who are part of that kingdom, as people who have made their declaration and live their life the way that you have asked us to live our lives. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.